Today's episode of the podcast, I feel like is really relevant to what's going on in society today. I have the Associate Director of the Anxiety and Stress Disorder Institute of Maryland, Mike Hetty. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Um, I actually was introduced to Mike through my uh, visiting, I guess, ASDI because of anxiety. And I feel like it's something I've been dealing with my entire life. Um, it's just something that kind of manifests more as, as, I'm an, as I'm an adult. And the first visit with you I thought was fantastic because you said if people are expecting like a magic fix right away or, you know, to just poof, the anxiety's gone, this isn't for them. I feel like that's a really candid way and true way of kind of starting out any sort of treatment. Yeah, I think of it as a uh, an honest, informed consent for our clients that come in through the door, um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what treatment is in general, especially treatment for things like anxiety or OCD. People often think treatment is about getting rid of controlling their anxiety symptoms. So they come in to see a therapist or a specialist and they think they're going to learn the secret handshake on how to do that. Um, so right from the first session, somewhere in that first hour or so, I like to uh, set up so that we can have um, uh, the same footing, so that we can be on the same page, that we're not really here to eliminate the symptoms of anxiety. We're trying to get you to a place where your anxiety doesn't matter anymore, and then you can go on and live your life. It's like it's always there, but it's it's learning how to to manage it and kind of deal with it on like a daily basis, because there'll be peaks and valleys for the whole thing. Like some days will be better than others, but it, it's just a different way and, and learning how to kind of not let it overcome you. Yeah, exactly. It's a good description of it. A lot of people will um, come into the office, you know, with a full blown anxiety disorder. It's interfered with their life. Um, it's decreased their functioning uh, in some important way. And they see their anxiety as threatening or dangerous, either the symptoms um, or the effect the symptoms has had on their life. Um, so it's natural that they would think, oh, I need to get rid of the symptoms to get better. Um, and if we shift our perspective about that a little bit and say, no, it's more about shifting our mindset or our attitude or relationship towards that initial anxiety, that it's not really a threat. Uh, it's not really dangerous. It's actually just uncomfortable and inconvenient. And would you like me to help you get to a place where that's how you see the anxiety symptoms as uncomfortable and inconvenient rather than threatening and dangerous? And for me, a lot of it was the, the what if or the anticipatory that I just didn't know how to handle or the best way to kind of go about it. And I feel like even thinking about it now, even as a kid, third, fourth grade, everything for me was a what if scenario. And then you're just kind of uh, leading yourself down this road of, oh, this is going to happen. And then if it doesn't, you've gotten yourself all worked up really for nothing. Yeah, I like to say that the two most important words in the sentence that you just said was what if. Um, they tell us everything we need to know about what we're doing in our mind. When we say what if, we are 
forecasting a future. We're trying to predict or control some often scary or uncertain future. Um, and we're basically telling ourselves scary stories. So what if is often easily replaced with the phrase, let's pretend. I, I do remember you referred to, to it as scary stories. And that's such like a, a great way to put it because it's just, you're, you're telling yourself something that it may or may not even happen and, you're tr and your body reacts like it is. The brain doesn't always know the difference, right? I mean, we go into a movie theater, say a scary movie, and the people who like scary movies go to see scary movies because there is those moments throughout this movie where our brain gets tricked into thinking that this is actually happening. Our heart starts to race, we start to sweat, we get full of suspense and tension, and we like that sensation. It's the same reason people like roller coasters, and the brain doesn't always know that this is just a story um, and once it realizes it is just a story, that's sort of the part where we kind of get that aha, that relief. This is just a story. Um, and the same thing is true for an anxiety disorder. It's just sort of a scary movie in your mind. Now, do you have people, and I know that this is in like a broad sense, that just think by showing up and, and going through the motion, so to speak, that it'll, they don't, they don't realize that there's work on the client's part that goes into I don't want to say remedying it, but working towards like the goal of being able to handle things better. Do people think that sometimes, oh, I'm just, I'm showing up, I'm doing this, I'm going to be fine? Yeah, I think uh, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what treatment is, sort of this doctor-patient model, um, which isn't entirely bad, but it smuggles in this idea that the doctor is here to fix me. And as long as I show up for this 45 minutes to an hour once a week or every other week that I just sit there, I listen and I'll get better. Um, and you know, if I'm doing my job correctly, I'm explaining to the patient frequently that this is an active form of therapy. I'm going to be sending you home with practice and experiential exercises that you're going to have to learn from on your own, as well as doing things in session. I feel like the ex like the experiential part is is the key, and it it was for me especially with with various forms of anxiety. It's it's about putting yourself, I guess, in the position that causes the anxiety, so you know how to or can learn how to handle it or learn how to, I guess, face it better. Um, that that type of therapy, and for me previously, like I I had seen other therapists prior to to ending up at. ASDI and it never got to that. It was about, and, and different strokes for different folks. Some things work better for other people, but the other therapists were always like, okay, talk to yourself and try this and like deep breathing. I'm like, that's not helping me realize what's going on in, on in the moment. It's more like once you're in that moment and that anxiety is like kind of washing over you, it's hard to focus on trying to get out of it. There's a, there's, I like to think of it as an order of operations, at least the, in my conceptualization, you know, breathing techniques can be helpful, progressive muscle relaxation can be helpful, um, but they often set up a struggle with the patient and their, their anxiety symptoms, right? It's like, if I'm learning how to manage or control or reduce these symptoms, what I'm telling myself is, 
Um, I can't tolerate these symptoms. I have to get rid of these symptoms. Um, and I think, again, this, this makes someone think that the anxiety is actually threatening or dangerous and has to be gotten rid of. Um, now, if we do good experiential work, if we do exposure work and cognitive work that isn't about trying to get rid of symptoms or, or control symptoms even, um, you can learn that they are uncomfortable, that they are inconvenient, and that you can live a, a meaningful life, um, you know, with, with some sensations of anxiety show up with the occasional scary story. And then after that, if you want to work on breathing retraining or progressive muscle relaxation, that's fine. If you have sort of the, the groundwork done already of, of what we might call an acceptance model. Um, and I can elaborate on that if that's. Important. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Cause I know, especially like, I know it's different for everybody, but in, in the grand scheme of things, like the acceptance of, okay, this is happening. It, it, what it, it's the, what if, or the anticipatory and accepting that, I guess, um, that what if scenario and okay, what if it does happen, then what? Right. And I think, so I would tweak that just a little bit and think, you know, if you had a what if scenario from an acceptance model, what I'd be accepting is that my brain sometimes tells me scary stories. What I'd be accepting is, is that there's a lot of uncertainty about the future and I can't always know what's going to happen. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily try to go into the scary story to figure it out or to understand it because now we're going down the rabbit hole of control and regulation. Um, and again, we run the risk of two things happening, endorsing the idea that anxiety is threatening and dangerous and needs to be controlled. Um, and, and when we also start looking at anxiety as, as the enemy, the thing that needs to be fought with, um, and what usually happens when we try to control an intrusive thought, a what if thought, at least, uh, at least the, the first part of the what if thought, um, it tends to backfire and we end up thinking about it more and we end up getting more distressed as opposed to less. Do you feel like, especially now that there's a louder discussion and more quote unquote regular people are discussing publicly or even amongst their friends in like their circles, anxiety and, and even depression to it, to an extent, because it's over the last few years, I feel like it's become almost normalized, but I mean that in a positive way where people are, are talking about it and talking about like, Hey, this affects me too. Even people like celebrities, you'll hear celebrities speak out about mental health or anxiety or depression. And I feel like that helps the so-called regular person want to take that step towards seeking assistance for it. I completely agree. I think anytime we can have uh, sports figures, um, you know, musicians, comedians, actors, people that uh, have a large influence over a good portion of, of viewers, um, when they come out and are honest and they disclose, um, that can have an incredible effect on people. Um, and I think especially younger people, right? The people who, you know, I'd say the under 30 crowd has the largest 
uh, it has the largest effect on that crowd because they're the ones paying the most attention to um, these celebrities on Twitter and, and, and following pop culture information. Um, and, and any news that is reducing stigma, that is, you know, reducing shame is going to be helpful. And uh, for me, like initially when I was seeking a way to, or someone to, to help me with the anxiety thing, it was almost, and this was a few years ago prior to me ending up, uh, at ASDI, it, it, it was almost like, oh, do I want to do this? Or it was almost wrestling with the thought of, do I just deal with this on my own or do I go out and, and ask for help with it for the anxiety part of it? And there's no real reason, especially now, or even then for anyone to kind of look down at themselves for wanting to take that step into getting better. That's like the, you know, if, if someone wants to go to the gym, it's kind of like the same thing. You got to go and you got to put in the work and it'll ultimately benefit you in the end if you're putting in the effort too. Yeah. And, and I think therapy has that relationship with people in the sense that you get out of it, what you put into it. I, I think there is some, you know, you, you want to be in the right therapy. Um, and I think there are issues with, you know, some of it might be cultural issues where going into therapy is not an accepted thing to do, that there is much more reliance on family, friends, and the self to get through these things, um, access to care, you know, can you afford it? Can you travel to it? But in a general sense, um, I think the stigma of seeking treatment, whether that be through medication or through counseling, um, is dropping um and i think that's a great thing that that the more people realize that i can seek treatment and i can be open with people um in my life that i'm seeking treatment um it destigmatizes it for other people and i've talked about it with more recently than than not though with some of my friends and just the fact that some of them are in therapy for it's mostly anxiety because I feel like given the world we live in now, anxiety is just kind of rampant. Um, but I, you know, if I mention, Oh yeah, I, you know, I see somebody for, to help with the anxiety part. The, oh yeah, me too. And it ends up being, you know, you can kind of not, I don't want to say commiserate, but like talk about it between each other and the other person gets what you're trying to say. And maybe before even three, four five years ago, most people weren't having that discussion with friends or family. Yeah, I think, I think anecdotally that's true. Um, I don't really know what the data is on that. I think there have been some families who have been therapy positive for decades. Um, and within the family, it's considered normal. Um, and then there's families today, obviously, that uh, therapy is not normal. It's not supported. It's sometimes even distrusted. I don't understand why. I mean, I understand that that's a thing that some people do, but I, I feel like if 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 you're distrusting someone that has the the education and the experience in whatever it is you're going through, then why would you not want to talk to that person or, meet, or at least meet that person? Which kind of leads me to the next thing I wanted to talk about. What like if somebody is just starting to consider this? process and looking for someone to talk to or someone to meet with, what do you kind of recommend as the initial steps someone should take when they're considering visiting a therapist or before they even start seeing somebody, what's the, you know, the first step down that road? 
That's a really good question. Um, I think it's a really important process that gets overlooked. So I'm going to have a lengthy answer to this. I <laughs> That's <think>. fine. <laughs> um, so what a lot of people end up doing is just, you know, discovering they have a problem. Oh, I'm really anxious. Um, I went to my primary care doctor or my high school counselor or something like that. And they told me I should seek treatment. Um, so they get a list from their insurance company and they just pick someone off that list. Um, and this is obviously an understandable way of going about doing it, but it's not particularly effective at getting into the right person. Um, and what I see more often is that it leads to like an exhausting trial and error process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the first thing, if I'm going to put these into steps, um, would be knowing what kind of issues that you're looking to get help with. Um, is it uh, relationship stuff, depression, anxiety, trauma? The list can go on. But what is it that you're looking for help with? Um, you know, uh, the the helping field, therapy, counseling, has become progressively more specialized since I would say the 90s, probably. Um, Prior to that, most people were considered generalists, so they would just treat anyone that came through their door. Um, And now we have mountains of research that uh, show that there's clearly effective treatments for certain disorders. So like the anxiety disorders, OCD, trauma, um, there are clearly effective treatments. Um, So the first step is knowing what you're looking to get help with. Um, and then, and then recognizing that, uh, there's a, there's an, there's an effective treatment, um, especially if it falls into one of those categories I mentioned, um, yeah, this does throw a bit of a wrinkle into the situation for a person looking to get therapy, mm-hmm. um, because now they're responsible for not only knowing what the effective treatment is, but figuring out who in their area provides that treatment. And so that's a little bit of a burden for the person. You just don't go to a list as if um, that person on that list is going to have all their specializations and credentials listed. Sure. Um, so there's like an extra step there, a research step. Um, a lot of people use platforms. Like if you Google something, you might show up. There's a lot of marketing platforms for therapists out there. I don't want to list them all, but they're out there. And uh, any therapist can go on there, create a profile, and what this platform does is verify that you're licensed, and that's about it. Really? So you can put in there that I treat OCD and that I treat OCD with this evidence-based approach, and there's no real way to verify that. Um, So I think this puts another sort of burden on the person looking for therapy is, is, you know, how do I find a person if it's not from my insurance list? I'll go online. How do I know that that person actually has the right experience and the right credentials for this issue? Well, that's not the easiest thing to figure out. It's almost like you you have to show up and and kind of talk to the person first, uh, or well, sure. I, I think an intermediate step might be um, you know skipping skipping um, the internet. Um, not entirely, but maybe going into uh, websites for advocacy organizations might be um, a more streamlined way of doing this. So if you're dealing with depression or an anxiety issue, there's an advocacy organization called the Anxiety and 
Depression Association of America. Um, and their job, their mission is to provide information and advocacy for those suffering with those illnesses. And so they're going to have access to consensus information from leading researchers, leading treatment professionals on what the most effective treatments are. Gotcha. And then they're also going to have like a find a therapist uh, option on their website. Um, so if you're a member of ADAA as a professional, you can have your practice listed there. And that's, that's a way to streamline it. If someone's a member, they're going to the conferences, more than likely they're up to date on the practices that are best for those issues. It's not a guarantee, but it's better than a random Google search. The same thing is true for say OCD. The, they have something called the International OCD Foundation. Um, they have a website and a similar set of uh, materials that you can read through. What is the consensus on the best treatment for this? And how do I find help? You can find a therapist right from their website by doing a search. Um, and um, then, then you can go into what you were talking about, which is actually calling and setting up some kind of a, you know, 10 or 15 minute phone chat. Um, I do that regularly with clients. Um, I don't charge for that. I just talk with them for 10 or 15 minutes and say, you know, um, tell me about what's going on. Maybe I can be helpful. And if I think I can, then we'll set up an appointment. I believe that's what we did initially. I think I might've, I, I got your contact from somebody else and I think it was initially an email. Maybe I, I think I emailed and I was like, look, here's my anxiety and what kind of is impacting like my day to day. Is that something, you know, that basically is, is that, you know, in your wheelhouse, so to speak. And from there on, like, I feel like I've, I've personally made strides using the approaches that we discussed. And like I said, I'm, I'm open with talking about it, like, especially with this, like this is going to be on the internet. The internet is forever. So like, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't mind talking about that sort of thing. I'm not going to get into specifics, but the fact that like it does help and like, I've become even a bigger advocate for it amongst my friends who have talked about, you know, dealing with like anxiety or something like that. I'm like, look, man, I know that it might not seem like the quote unquote cool thing to do, but it's definitely beneficial and it's worth exploring. Even if, you know, you might think it's makes you a lesser or weaker person, which I think is bullshit because anything you want to do to better yourself, that's like, I, I don't understand why anybody wouldn't want to do that. Right. And I think that gets at that self stigma piece, right? So social stigma has gone down over the decades where people are using um, discriminatory ideas or have discriminatory reactions towards people with mental health. That's decreasing the self stigma piece, the reason people or the way people react privately to their own issues um, is, is still, I think, in, in pretty full force. I think a lot of people feel ashamed or broken or, um, uh, or whatever um, negative feelings they might have towards their issues, um, which obviously prevents them from wanting to talk to other people about it. And I think an incredibly powerful thing for those people is to hear someone who's a friend or a family member sort of disclose that they too have struggled with something, they saw treatment and they thought it was helpful. And that's how referrals happen a lot of the time is, is I know a person they've helped me, maybe I can give you their number. And if they don't treat you, maybe they know someone um, that they would trust to help provide treatment. And again, that's another way of bypassing that random internet search or that random 
picking out of a list of providers from your insurance company. Do you find that uh, in in a you know a non-specific sense, obviously given the line of of work that it is, that the majority of people who you meet or you that come to see you are referral or from the general like oh, I'm just I found you on Google. Like, is there do they even mention which which route they've they've kind of that's led them to you? Yeah, uh, and I often ask. Um, so when I first started out um, over a decade ago, it was largely through my uh, advertising through, through different platforms on the internet for therapists. And I would get phone calls or emails from those people. Um, and sometimes I'd be the first therapist they'd ever reached out to, or they were unhappy with their current therapy and they just Googled it and found me. Now that I've been in practice for a while, um, you know, a lot of referral sources know who I am. Uh, word of mouth through former clients uh, is probably the best referral, you know, um, that's primarily where I get my referrals today is through word of mouth referrals or through, you know, doctors, physicians, ER docs um, who see someone come in with with a panic attack and they think, yeah, I know this person who treats this. I've worked with him before. I trust him. You should go see him. And I assume now, especially given the current state of, of the health in, I guess, the entire country with COVID-19, are you taking uh, new approaches to seeing patients? I assume it's all via like telehealth. And have you seen an uptick in people reaching out because it's a pretty stressful time right now? I can say sort of it, what the field has experienced for certain is, um, or what I'm predicting, will be an uptick in a need for help, especially as this sort of passes. Um, people are going to really I think, uh, have an increased need for our services. Um, I think the scary thing is, is will the economy be able to support access to that kind of care? Right. People will have, people have the money to do it. But to answer the first part of the question is, yeah, I've completely switched to telehealth. And I think um, the vast majority of the field who uh, has done that um, out of a public health concern, obviously. Um, and that doesn't really change the treatment so much. Of certainly the delivery system through a computer feels awkward at times, but the treatment hasn't changed really. Um, I find we're talking about coronavirus a lot more. Sure. Um, and sometimes that's productive conversations. But what I'm finding now is that a lot of these conversations are just repetitive, anticipatory, anxiety, worried. We're talking about the same thing. There's no new information. Um, and I think the kindness that we can give the clients, even our friends and our family members is like, well, let's just switch the topic of conversation. Um, the same way you might change the channel when the 24 hour news network is going like, I'm just going to change the channel. We're going to talk about other things. I feel like that's what's really helped out my, uh, I've for whatever reason was watching like the, the daily press uh, like conferences the the president was having just because I was wanted to see what they were saying. I was more interested in hearing what the local or the governor of Maryland would say or Dr. Anthony Fauci would say because I feel like for me, uh, I would trust those sources more than some others. Um, but my wife's gotten to the point where, it, you know, if I have it on for a little bit, just to kind of see what their initial remarks are, she's like, can we change this? Like she doesn't want to 
to to kind of to watch it anymore. It's not like we're both stressing out like crazy about it, but at the same time, when they're saying all this, you know, doom and gloom type of things, you 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 don't want to kind of lean into that, especially because there's not really anything new about it that they can tell you, and it's almost just like okay, let's let's change the channel and put on. I feel like Comedy Central has been running the office nonstop for the last like three <laughs> weeks, so we'll flip that on and kind of disconnect from the news cycle. Yeah. And I think giving yourself permission to do that. A lot of people might look at watching the news as being this, this important thing. I need to stay informed. I need to be a good citizen. I need to know what's happening. And a lot of it is also just about their own anxiety, right? I need to be glued to this thing to know what the next scary message is going to be. Um, and if we can get people to realize really, this isn't, um, this isn't about getting new information. This isn't about, um, clarifying some sort of CDC protocol. This is really kind of like looking at a car accident. Um, I, I can't seem to look away. And maybe what we need to do is, is give ourselves permission to change the channel. Um, and again, that's a privileged position for most of us, right? We have the ability to sort of not be directly affected by this issue. Sure. So we can change the channel. When you look at the, my, my sister is, is a, a nurse in an ICU. Oh, wow. Um, and sort of dealing with this. And that's, I can't even imagine the stress that those people on the front lines are dealing with. And I'd be having a very different conversation with those people than I would with someone who's more in my position where I'm like, you know, spending a couple hours a day talking to patients through my computer uh, and they're doing the same thing um, with work and with me and with their friends. And that's, that's a different conversation. I can't even imagine the you know, the anxiety or, or stress that the normal person, and I say normal as in not a healthcare worker is experiencing right now, which is, you know, worrying, oh, what if I get it? Or like, do I need to wear gloves and a mask at the grocery store? That sort of thing. But mm -hmm. the stress or anxiety, somebody like your sister or somebody who's working at a, you know, an ER or a surgeon, even like you, because, because you're around, around the medical field or you're in a ho in a hospital i can't imagine that sort of anxiety because it it's a different level than what you know somebody like me would experience just because that person is uh, likely around it on a day-to-day -day. yeah and i think it's real you know it's it's not what if i'm exposed to coronavirus it's like i have five patients um, who are being put on ventilators because they have coronavirus, your exposure is, is obvious at that point. It's just wearing the protective equipment and hoping that the steps um, are, are keeping you safe. Um, but even healthcare workers can have um, unproductive anxiety about this. Um, so that's, that's part of the work is separating out what is the productive versus the unproductive anxiety. And if it's a productive anxiety, I'm treating it quite differently. You know, we're going to go into problem solving mode, but if it's unproductive, we're going to change the way we relate to scary stories. We're going to change the behaviors we have around watching the news and having conversations with our friends. We're going to stop checking our temperature 10 times a day and stop checking our breathing to make sure it's not labored. Um, and a lot of anxious people, you know, people with panic attacks, um, people with health anxiety or OCD are going to find themselves doing that. Uh, and thinking that that's best practices when it's not. I feel like me from two years ago, if this 
you know, this was happening then, I would handle it different than I am now. Obviously, if I go out um, to the grocery store, I'm careful. I'm not touching my face after I pick up whatever it is I'm getting. And obviously, limiting my 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 trips out to get whatever. And my wife and I are both doing the same thing. She's working from home now. Her office is closed. Um, I'm, uh, I was, I lost my job back in January. And so trying to find a new job now, especially is that's for me is the bit of a stressor. Luckily there's a severance thing that's will take care of me for a little while, but the stress for me now isn't so much. What if I get this? It's all right. The employment climate is a little bit, a lot different now than it was then. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm still not really, really focusing on that because I can't control it. And I, if I can't control it, what's the point in letting it kind of burrow itself into my brain and kind of rule my day? Yeah. And I mean, that's precisely the learning that I would hope someone would get out of coming into treatment is focus on the things you can control and do those things. But when you're faced with things you genuinely can't control, like the future um, about whether someone will or won't get sick, whether the economy will support a new job or it won't, um, as of right now in this moment, worrying about it, obsessing about it um, doesn't help. So we want to make room for that uncertainty and say, you know, right now I can't know and that's that's okay. It's uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. Now, just kind of shifting a little bit, is there misconceptions about therapy or mental health or the way it's perceived in, especially like in TV or film? Do you see stuff that you're almost kind of, I don't want to say annoy you, but you're like, this is not the way it is. And it's kind of sending the wrong message to people. I know, especially in film and television, stuff's always sensationalized in a way. But is there stuff that you see that you're like, this bugs me and it bugs me because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, um, for sure. I've, you know, watching movies um, over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years and there's the bulk of how they portray therapy is still this kind of um, lay on the leather couch while the therapists talk to you about your mother being the root of all your problems. and. <laughs> There's this, you know, there's this idea that the, the therapist has this secret magical knowledge and you're dependent on that therapist to, un, you know, unshackle you from the things that are keeping you stuck in this thing. And, you know, there's a, you know, I, I'm probably not doing um, the best way of describing what you see on TV. But yeah, I, I see that that annoys the crap out of me because that's not how I or most of my colleagues practice. Um, I mean, there are therapists out there that practice traditional psychoanalysis, this old Freudian lay on the couch, don't say much um, type of therapy, but it's not, it's not the most common today. Um, you know, my clients don't lay on my couch. We're, you know, prior to coronavirus, we were not spending a ton of time in the office if we didn't have to, right? If someone had problems with, uh, with panic attacks on the highway or, or fear of enclosed spaces, we might go to the mall to ride an elevator or drive in a car around the highway. But that doesn't always make for good TV, you know? So I don't blame the entertainment industry for trying to make this thing look more 
sexy and entertaining than it might look if you showed it for real. Did you do you uh, do a lot of the out of the office type type treatment like with people in certain situations? I know that's that's something I, I don't think a lot of people realize is an option. Uh, it, it, I feel like just when you think therapy, it's discussing a thing or discussing a, a concern or a problem. And then the client is kind of le- not left to their own devices, but it's them to kind of work towards it. The, like the example you gave going to a mall, riding an elevator, that sort of thing. Is that something that's more common now? Or do you spend you know, a good time during a, a session doing those sort of things? Um, the, the unsatisfying answer to that question is it depends. Sure. Um, but, you know, if a client needs um, to be shown uh, how to do an exposure, if a client would benefit from doing exposures in sessions, which I think is the best way to demonstrate how to do exposures and how to learn how to handle anxiety is to do it in session. And sometimes in sessions in the office, there's ways you can do exposures in the office. But yeah, I find myself still leaving the office and going places. Um, and sometimes, again, the, the, the most common example is, is driving around on the highway um, or, or going into a, a crowded area. Of course, you can't do any of this now it wouldn't be considered right. essential um but you know let's pretend it's not you know coronavirus uh time and yeah i would i would take my patients where they need to go we would get in their car driver on the highway we would go into an elevator um we would find where their anxiety is and we would go to it and then we would do treatment there and then they can do they can repeat that with them you know by themselves between sessions so they learn it. It's almost like like school. You learn it from the, the therapist, the instructor, and then learn how to apply that. And then, okay, between now and next time, go out and do it. Exactly. You know, we're not trying to keep, we're not trying to keep the antidote to the anxiety disorder a secret that only we have. We're trying to teach it to you so that you don't need to keep coming into therapy forever. And this, this might be a question that I, I'm not sure you'll be able to answer, but is is it difficult to avoid taking, uh, basically taking the work home or letting things kind of stuff you discuss with a client in the office to let it kind of hang with you once you're out of the office in a way? I, I'm sure you hear things from, you know, trauma to relatively like normal, quote unquote, or like anxiety that's not a huge thing, but is there a way to kind of avoid having that hang with you? I think that's a skill. Um, and I think it's a skill they should teach in grad school, but they don't. Um, you kind of learn it on the job. Mm, if you have a good teacher or a mentor when you're getting supervision for this type of work, um, that's something you can process with them as you're having difficult cases. Cause yeah, you can definitely take home, um, stories um, that have been described in detail, you take that home and maybe that's one of five patients who have told you incredibly difficult stories. Um, and you can take that home. And the hard part would be to, you know, do a kindness for yourself and learn how to separate that, to create some distance. You know, that's, that's work that when I'm in the office and dealing with this particular patient, that's when I'm thinking about this stuff. And otherwise I'm shifting over 
to whatever my task is supposed to be in this present moment, whatever my uh, whatever I find productive and valuable in this present moment. So I'm not trying to push the client's story that's troubling to me out of my head. I'm just trying to allow myself to see other things while that story slowly dissipates in the back. Um, but it's it's a tough one, um, depending on the clientele that you see. You know, if you work for the the VA, you're going to be hearing this stuff from every patient all day long. Sure. Um, and and for me, I see more variety of of people with, you know, OCD, anxiety disorders like panic disorders, social anxiety, generalized anxiety, um, and so the variety there allows for probably a a little bit less. Um, less difficult stories to to create distance from when I get home. And then I guess the the last question, which uh, might be, it might be the hardest to answer, but it's what in this line of work makes you feel successful or accomplished? Not that you're patting yourself on the back, but at the end of a day or a week or a month or a year, you're like, I'm really glad I was able to get this done or you know, learn this, whether it's continuing education, whether it's teaching, uh, or just knowing that the interactions with your clients are beneficial. I think for me, it's the latter. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy, um, learning. Um, but when I get feedback from a client who says, this has been incredibly helpful, um, thank you so much. When I see them increase their functioning, you know, they couldn't do this. And then six weeks later, they're doing that. Um, that's the most rewarding thing I can think of. And not just because it means I'm doing something that, you know, I'm good at what I do or, or because that person sort of, um, got better because they saw me. It's, it's just, it's just really rewarding to, travel that journey with them. They came in with a problem, they had this issue, and then together you you went through this process and the process worked and they got better and they're doing things in their life. And you just, you, you, you form a therapeutic relationship with your clients. So you're quite proud and, and happy that they're functioning better. Um, and of course, I'd love to take all the credit and I can't because <laughs> they're the ones doing the work. Sure. I, I wasn't trying to get a free session out of this podcast today. Just so you know, it's, but no, I, I appreciate the time. If anybody is looking for help when it comes to anxiety or stress or panic or any of, any of those myriad of, 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 uh, of issues, the website for the ASDI, it's uh, anxietyandstress.com. Is that correct? Correct. So yeah, yes. check that out. Um, there's plenty of uh, information on there as well. And if anyone's interested in, in reaching out, to you or to any of the other therapists at the, uh, at that institution, I highly recommend anxietyandstress.com. I'm not being paid to say this just from a positive, uh, experience for myself. Um, Mike, thank you so much. And congratulations on the, uh, becoming the co-director of the, of the Institute and, uh, many more years of continued success to you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.